Call together now, Jeff. And help it out. Bring, up, bring it up from your gut. Oh, here we go now. This is where it gets big. get some of these commercials out of the way. The first thing we got we have here is show. And uh, they oh speaking of uh, of opera, as long as we have opera here, if we're crying out loud, Das Rangul, starring Houston Flagstad, George London, John Midiata, and Schwit point out that they have a, a special thing about bunnies in the Playboy Clubs. I'm sure that all of you intellectual types will be interested in that. And then a searching deep probing profile of Japan, the new Far West. So they've covered the thing there, the gamut. That show this month on, on your newsstand. Speaking of gamut, uh, I think gamut, which is an excellent word, it's G-A-M-U-T, gamut, uh, that's a great word to describe life itself. Well, has anybody out there got a, got a definition of gamut? Do you have a definition? Do you have a dictionary of the gamut? Gamut. Uh, speaking of running the gauntlet, this is WOR AM and FM New York, and we'll be here until one. Uh, no midnight it is now. Yeah, we have with us here Mandarin House. Oh, hey, listen, I I uh, I put on the thing tonight up at uh, Mandarin House on Second Avenue, just off of Fifty Seventh Street. It's about three doors north of Fifty Seventh on Second. And let me tell you one thing, you, you know. I, I had, uh, every time I go to the Mandarin House, this is Mandarin food, I order something different. And tonight, I had twice cooked pork. If you go to one of the Mandarin houses, please select twice cooked pork. Try it if you like hot, spicy food. And this is Mandarin House. I know that you can eat at the Mandarin House. If you were to eat every night at the Mandarin House, you could eat for over 400 days without repeating a menu. Insane. Yeah, 400 days. We were counting it up tonight. And and one more thing, there is a wild article on Emily Quo in tonight's World Telegram. Great big article. This is Emily. Yeah. And they have a bar. All right. They're open on the weekend. All right. Now let's see. We also have uh, Jules Pfeiffer's new book, Hold Me. No, 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 no. It's a very funny book. And uh, for you Pfeiffer fans, you should know that there is a new Pfeiffer collection out called Hold Me, which uh, is a very it's a very uh, nervous book, and it's one of the very few books that enjoys being petted. And if you like to just hold things, you know, a lot of people just walk around town holding books and carrying them in the back pocket of their chinos. Well, this is a book that's designed for that. It bends in the middle, and it's soft. And it's a very nervous book and likes to be just held and petted. So if you don't like to read books, Hold Me is perfect for you. You can look at it in a minute and a half, but it's very funny. Hold Me, Jules Piper Random House. $1.95, and you can pick it up at your favorite bookstore. And let's... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, uh, speaking of... Uh, have you got my have you got my favorite tenor up there, Ed? No, that's all right, then. I'd kind of like to have him again. <laughs> yes, he is irrepressible. Would you please get that guy out there? Uh, uh, if you can, Eddie... Uh, come on, come on, quick, 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 quickly, baby. 
on the same side, Ed, two cuts before, there is the same guy belting out an even funnier one. Pagliacci, you got it in there? Huh? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, there isn't, there isn't one of us that doesn't have an insane desire inside of us. There's something about operatic singing. Well, come on, bring it up again. Come on, Ed. Oh, that's wonderful. See, I'm the villain, you see. Now, I'll tell you what I'm playing here in this scene now. Now, now, put it back up there. He is playing the heroic tenor. And I am playing the sinister baritone whom he has just discovered making love to the Count's wife. The Countess Della Chiesa Forza. And I have been making love to her clandestinely on the castle's ramparts. Now, I, I draw out my dagger, and he is now threatening me. <laughs> See, I'm laughing sinisterly now, and I'm standing with my dagger held at ready. <laughs> <laughs> very good. All right, you see? Now, it's very simple if you you get yourself... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll, I'll never forget one thing, though, that... that uh, I don't know whether any of you remember this. I, I will award a brass figligi to anybody with bronze oak leaf palm who was at a certain very nearby military installation when this occurred. I happened to be there. And they brought in a large raggle-taggle collection of Italian prisoners of war. Now, that was a very interesting experience because... <laughs> Now, the Italians will argue this back and forth and up and down and sideways. But the Italians were just not in it during World War II. Now, they're going to argue, and, and, and there's going to be a lot of guys call in. But history will not bear you out, fellows. In fact, I, I knew an Italian pursuit pilot who told me a very funny story. One day, I'm standing on the beach here a couple of years ago at Anzio. And we're, we're standing there, and I'm with this friend of mine who, as I said, was, was a Fiat pilot. He flew... Uh, <laughs> it was a terrible airplane, by the way. That airplane was about, was about, really, roughly, it would be like, it would be like entering the Sebring run with a, with an Essex Super 6. It, oh, yes, it was a very defeated airplane at that point. You see, the Germans gave them no Messerschmitts, and apparently he had the last of the biplanes. And, and, uh, by that time, the Allies were halfway up, up the boot of, Italy, and were marching on their way to Switzerland and every place else. And he was stationed near Rome. Anzio is just outside of Rome. And he was stationed near Anzio. 
at that point, and there was an airfield there. And, and I had never talked about this to him, see? <laughs> and he said, uh, he says, look out to there. And I looked out, and he's pointing out over the water. And the beautiful day, and the sun is coming down, and the, you could see the water rippling in the... It's just lovely there. It's just a beautiful place. And you could see the, that, that sun hitting the, hitting the Mediterranean and just... It's just lovely, lovely afternoon. And we're looking out, and he says, You see that point out there? And I said, Yes. He said, Well, you'll never forget one day when, when a bunch of uh, British planes came over, and they alerted him. And he said, he said, All of us jumped into our planes. He said, And I started to take off on the runway. And he says, I got about the 50 feet in the air, and I'm going to get no tail in the airplane. And into the water I go, just like that. Boom, splash. He says, I go into water. <laughs> well, he was just taken off, and they shot the tail of his airplane off. So he, he, he's in the water. He gets out of the water. He, he swims around. His plane sinks. And, and he swims all the way back in. He says, I swim into the point. And, and the commander told, I say, get in the airplane. In the airplane, Federico. And, and I, I run over, and I jump into another airplane. This is a, a true story. He jumps into another airplane. Says, "I take off down the runway, and this time I get up in the air. I, I go up, 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 up. I make a turn. Ah, oh, they shoot off a wing, and oh, oh, down into the water I go. Into the water he goes. He said he was shot down in in less than a minute. <laughs> he was shot down twice." He says, so then he swims to the shore, and he was happy. He says, I'm happy all the way. They are, they are telling, if you are shot down, you'll get sent up to Milano on a leave. One month leave for getting shot down. I am happy. I am swimming in. I am going up to Milano for one month of vacation. I get on the runway, and the commandatory says, Federico, into the airplane. They are coming. I jump in the airplane. Up I go. Ah! Down I go again. Three times. One, two, three times. Oh, in the water I go. I swim. Well, he says he swam all the way back. And he says the only reason that they didn't send him up the fourth time was that the plane that he had just been shot down in was the last airplane they had for 45 miles around. Anyway, I was at this place. Uh, I'll have to tell you this story. It was kind of a funny thing. We were, we were uh, the war was going full tilt, and suddenly... They brought in this bunch of, of raggle-taggle Italian prisoners. Well, the first thing that knocked us all out about them were that they were all about a fifth, at least a foot and a half shorter than we were. It seems like they had raided all the elves and had brought a whole bunch of elves in or something, and all these little fellows were running around, and I don't know, it must have been a special, maybe two or three battalions of little guys that they had gotten from someplace in Italy. I never saw anything like it. And, and they came in, and, of course, all the G.I.s were fascinated by this. We're all standing around looking at them, and they had these, these strange colored uniforms. They have an odd sort of uniform. The, the Italian uniform looks like it was left out in the rain too long. It, it all, all their uniforms looked like they were another color before, <laughs> even when they're new. So they, they, these guys are, are all being brought in, and we're all standing around looking at them. Well, for some reason, it was very difficult to get mad at them. They were just sort of walking along, a whole bunch of them. There must have been about 150 of them in the bunch. And guys are saying, Oh, come on! Oh, Guzzi! They're hollering at him. And these guys saying nothing. You know, they're sort of shuffling in. And they put him into barracks. Well, apparently the official attitude was very much the same. 
because they put these guys in the barracks, and about three days later, it was the it was the it was the darndest thing you ever saw in your life. All the Italians had come out of their barracks. It was wild, and they had made every bar Now remember, this is in a GI camp, very GI. Everything is absolutely square corners. The, the, the nothing but gravel, you know, Ed, and, and the, they have little ditches by the side of the road and, and dirt around the car. Everything is trampled down. There's nothing, no, there is not one bit of decor anywhere around except maybe a flag somewhere. Well, these Italians had taken all the rocks that they could find on the ground and had painted them white. They had gotten somewhere, they had gotten some whitewash, and they built little fences around the barracks where they put them out of stones. And then they built rock gardens. And they were all out building rock gardens, and these guys not only built rock gardens, they put hearts out there in rocks, you know. They had hearts. They had, I mean, it was typical. All of a sudden, it was right back in Jersey, you know, out in the front of the houses with the hearts and the, and, and, and the, the stone deer and the, the rubber Mexicans and all of it. They had hearts and flowers. They had little Madonnas they built out of the rocks. And it was all out there in front of, the, in front of their barracks. It was a very wild scene. Uh-oh. A, a bulletin here? Go ahead, Ed. This is a bulletin just in from the WOR newsroom, Dateline Salt Lake City. Federal aviation officers reported two military planes, one a bomber and the other a tanker, collided during a mid-air refueling exercise shortly before 11 p.m. tonight near West Yellowstone, Montana. No further details are available as of this hour. Stay tuned here to WOR Radio. We'll keep you posted. Now back to Gene Shepard. You know, I'll tell you, uh, there's a very, thank you, folks. There's a very, very, uh, very odd thing about, uh, about what this did to us as we're walking around there. You see, we were being trained, uh, at least at that point. We, these guys had just been brought in from North Africa. And we were all being trained, very hard-bitten type guys. And suddenly, to see all these guys walking around with little hearts and flowers in front of their barracks, you know. It was very demoralizing, and once in a while somebody tried to get mad. Well, on Sunday, now, I, I, I wonder if anybody who's listening was witness to this. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. On Sunday, they let all the Italian prisoners just walk around. They walked all around, just like all the rest of the GIs. And they gave them funny sort of uniforms with a big orange thing around the side of their, their arms so that you could identify the Italians. Of course, you could identify the Italians from a mile away. Because they walked funny and everything. They, you know, they didn't walk like soldiers or anything. And you would go into the PX, and there'd be about, oh, like a, like 150 GIs standing there, great big lunks from the Midwest, scratching and hollering. And scurrying around would be about 17 or 18 little Italian GIs with their orange things on there. Now, I don't know where... They, they must have gotten Red Cross packages or something because they gave them little certificates that they could trade in for Milky Way bars. Well, <laughs> these Italians are in there trading Milky Way bars, and, and everybody sort of, you know, everybody, nobody quite knew how to feel that, you know, we didn't know quite how, because after all, you know, this is the enemy, and they're fooling around the PX, you got to go, yeah, yeah, enemy, you go and hit one on the face, and he's a little guy who weighs 105 pounds, and he's standing there real sad. Well, then, on, the word got out, apparently, all over Jersey, among the Italians, that there were some Italian prisoners in this camp. Because every Sunday, this is what would happen, there would be 45,000 Italians outside the gates, all along the fence. They had wire fences, and all the Italian GIs would be lined up inside, looking at you. You'd hear these guys yelling back and forth, and, and there were, you never saw more Italian chicks from Jersey in your life. 
standing outside the gate <laughs> talking to the Italian GIs, who obviously they didn't know. They were just Italians. And they were, they were handing stuff back and forth, bread and so on. And, and w within weeks, it was a wild scene, within weeks, apparently somebody had smuggled in like 94,000 pounds of geranium seeds from the outside Italians because apparently no Italian is happy unless he has geraniums growing somewhere. Well, <laughs> around the front of the, of the barracks all, were, were all these guys. You, you never saw because all the rest of the camp was very official and you saw about seven barracks that had geraniums all around them, geraniums and hearts and flowers and, and little Madonnas, and you could hear all night long, all night long, you could hear these guys hollering and I must say that from those days on until the year, the, the, the times that I spent in Italy after that, uh, I formed a great and, and lasting and abiding affection for the Italians, which is very difficult to explain. Uh, it, it, is, it is a thing which you cannot quite uh, transmit. You know, speaking of, uh, of the abiding affection, uh, <laughs> I, 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 it's a funny thing. I was standing, uh, one of the sad kind of things uh, that, I, that I saw along that line was, was right outside of Rome. As a matter of fact, in, in Rome, there is a tremendous park and a kind of, uh, oh, it's a kind of a sports uh, arena and so on that was built under Mussolini. And uh, they have, around the edge of this thing, the wildest statues you ever saw. Terrible art. It's the worst kind of Norman Rockwell-type art. But it's... it's uh, You know, heroic art is all right, but when heroic art gets phony, oh, boy, there's nothing phonier than heroic art. Now, heroic art is something you don't see often here in America, but heroic art is statue art. You know, the, you, you've seen these generals in the in the park, you know, with the gigantic bulging muscles. They even got muscles behind their ears, you know, the tremendous thing. And their horses look like no horses you ever saw. Great big muscular, big teeth, eyeballs bulging. Well, you know, this is this is heroic art. Well, you should have seen the Italian heroic art, which uh, which they uh, which they put up during the time of Mussolini, and it showed all these various heroic people. This is one of the things that, that is fascinating about dictatorships. Art immediately goes into a nosedive. Oh, wow. Uh, have, you, have you ever seen uh, any of the heroic paintings of the Russians? Oh, they make this stuff that people do, you know, that they get from the Woolworths, where they paint it by the numbers. They make that stuff look abstract. I'm serious. They make that look like it's real deep stuff. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, well, these statues are all around there, and I'm spending the last day I was spending there at that time in Rome. I was in sitting there with the girl, and, and the sun was coming out. It was just a magnificent day, and the birds were twittering. And all these statues were standing around us there. And there was a, they, they, they were just a long line of white statues. There was the heroic peasant girl looking up there, and great big muscles, and she's got a big scythe, and she's getting ready to do whatever things do to the wheat, you know. And then, then it shows heroic scientists. And he's standing there looking off into the far distance with little nuclear things flying around him. This was all done, you see, during Mussolini. For some reason, well, they haven't taken that junk down. Well, then, then the biggest one of all, and, and the guy, had he just had these little shorts on. See, he, he was the tallest one. He was 37 and a half feet tall if he was an inch. A gigantic, it looked like he was made out of plaster Paris, 
a gigantic Italian soldier. Enormous muscles. He's got a great big gun and a big square jaw in his eyes. And all around me in the deck chairs were the same little Italians, which I had seen over at Monmouth, you know, little skinny guys. And a great big statue is looking out there. I just thought that was kind of... It wasn't until I got home that I realized that the image of America to the average American is very different from what America really is, which just exactly, of course, it takes an outsider to see it. And it really does. And the offense sitting there. And so I say to this girl, I said, that's quite a statue there. And she says, very good. And I said, uh, well, well uh, do you know anybody like that? She says, no, but very good, the statue. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got to take off of the runway. Uh, 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 oh, I'm in the water. Now. I swim in it. I said, oh, very good. I go back to Milano now. One month on Milano, I get off. Uh, 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 they shoot at me. <laughs> oh, boy. And don't think for one minute I'm making fun of the Italians. I, I, I dig them. I like that attitude. Uh, I'm, I'm very much for it. You know, speaking of war uh, and, and the, the strange, sinister things that are going on, which are uh, everywhere, uh, there, was a, there was an advertisement in Newsweek. No, Aviation Week. Aviation Week was a very official magazine. And, and uh, it's, it's one of the, You have my sinister wartime music up there, Eddie? That's it. All right, come on, let's go. Aviation Week, 22 April, 1963. Engineered for global street fighting. Modicon 5. Ready to move on instant notice to anywhere in the world to counter-aggression on enemy-selected ground and under enemy-prescribed conditions. Designed to assure mastery of the air situation with command and control of aerial operations and close support of ground forces. Engineered for first-day capability. Mixed weapons control. Modular dispersibility. Compactly packaged for global mobility and air transportable shelters suitable for helicopter and vehicular operations. Fully researched and developed for rapid integration into special air warfare units. Engineers and scientists qualified to assume important assignments in advanced data handling and display systems will find a broad spectrum of challenging opportunities at Litton Systems. Engineered for global street fighting, Madame Cam What is it? You know, another thing that we're doing that I, I kind of like, I mean, all over the world it's being done. Don't put that away yet. That's a good one. All over the world, we are beginning to develop new words to hide behind, words that somehow sound clean and antiseptic, that cover 
a multitude of wild things. For example, uh, well, you've heard the word mega kill. Have you heard that word? I mean, that doesn't sound as bad as one million people killed. <laughs> you know, it doesn't. It's just a mega kill. And, and this is one of the, uh, I, I think, one of the sneakiest problems that we have with us today is this wild desire to cover up what we're really doing with all kinds of little bath mats of unreality, you know, little bath mats with little roses and hearts and flowers. I'd like to point out that this ad has what appears to be a Japanese woodcut illustrating it, see, with the, with the little canes and beautiful little things there. And uh, it's, it's kind of like a fun thing. And, and, and some of these words are such bright words because they, they really don't, they really don't, uh, it's hard to know what they really mean. And when you think about what they really mean, by that time it's too late. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the copy has gone past you. For example, uh, let's see, here's a good word here. Uh, kind of like, I like this one. Uh, modular dispersibility. That's a good word. It's specially designed for that, you know. Uh, that's, that's a very good word. Uh, mm. There's a lot of words. Uh, Anti-self-aggression fact. Well, that's a very good one, too. <laughs> you know what that means? That means that the guy just sort of kind of gets smart. That's sub-aggression. Oh, yeah, well, you, well, you see, you've got to have levels of aggression. Now, if a guy hits you in the eye, that's aggression. What are you going to do if he just turns you all right, wise guy? Flicks his eyebrow at you. What do you call that, then? You've got to call that something, you know? You really do. Somehow, it, reminds me, it reminds me of the time... Uh, it's, science, of course, is a, is, is a thing. It's a real wild thing. I, I was reading today uh, where in, in one of the papers where they were talking about uh, the fact that, that all over town people have stopped drinking martinis, and now they're drinking straight gin on the rocks, see? Uh, and uh, so <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were asking why this was. You know, they, everybody was wondering why, why it was, and, and this far-seeing, hard-hitting philosopher says, well, of course, it's, uh, it's due to tension over the atom bomb. Do you know anybody who's tense over the atom bomb, Ed? <laughs> we are using this just like people used to use... All kinds of things like uh, religion, earthquake, uh, the great uh, landslide, the avalanche. We're using these things to to, uh, to duck out. I, I, it couldn't be that people just don't like vermouth, you know? Couldn't be that. Couldn't possibly be, huh? Well, well on the subject of, of things that couldn't be, do you know that, uh, I remember, uh, in 19... When I, when I, was, I, was, I was a kid, I, this, this stuck in my mind. It just, just stuck in my mind like a, like, a, like a thing. I can't get rid of it. When they had the World's Fair, when I was a kid, uh, out in Chicago, they had this big World's Fair. I'm looking forward to the opening of the New York World's Fair. I'm a great World's Fair fan. There's no question about it. But I'm afraid from the rundown of the various uh, exhibits which I have seen already displayed of, about this World's Fair, it seems to me like it's going to be a gigantic public relations job. Uh, oh, yes. You know what I mean. Every building is designed to sell something, uh, to package whatever it might be, whether it's the Billy Graham Crusade building or uh, it could be the, the Russian pavilion. It's all a gigantic whole series of packages designed. It's like enormous presentations where you get in there and the films are going and the guys are handing out pamphlets and the girls are walking around dressed like cowboys and all that stuff. Well, now, now the World's Fair was not always that way. Uh, really, they, they weren't always that way. There was a lot of other things went on in World's Fairs, and one of the things that always is really spectacular about a World's Fair, Dave, is when they open it. Now, I don't know how they're going to open this World's Fair the first day, but when I was a kid, I'll tell you how they opened the World's Fair when, when, I, was, when I was a little thing. They did it with a star, yes. 
And and they when the star when this star crossed a certain point, it, it, it was picked up by a photoelectric cell and it kicked a lot of relays and the World's Fair went on. Just like that, see, and, and everybody stood around and waited for it to happen. Well, you know, this was a gas. I mean, it's just a wild thing that it, the star turned down the World's Fair. And the star was named Arcturus, which has always been a great name for a star to me. Arcturus. And uh, I, I remember one quote that was, that was, it just sticks in my mind like a little neon sign. A quote. Uh, a lady was asked about, you know, she, they had this inquiring reporter thing in the Chicago Tribune. And one lady made the comment, she says, isn't it amazing how the scientists know the names of all them stars? <laughs> and it suddenly occurred to me, yeah, well, how do they know the name of all them stars? You know, <laughs> wouldn't it be terrible to get up to Mars and find out that its name is Fred? You know, all these years everybody's been talking about landing on Mars and it turns out they're landing on Clarence. And, 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 you know, it would be very depressing. They have to radio out. Hey, it ain't Mars. This place is not Mars. Uh, we just have received the information that this place is named Clarence Seastrom. Clarence Seastrom is the name of this planet. And there are a lot of guys sitting around here who are fat and are drinking beer, and they're watching television. The name of this place is Clarence Seastrom. So will you please put that on the 11 o'clock news with uh, Ron Kaufman, will you? Ladies and gentlemen, tonight our scientists landed on Mars. And the first thing they discovered was the name of the planet is Clarence L. Seastrom, and that there were many people sitting around watching television and were fat. Now, uh, <laughs> they were preparing to have a war, too, at the moment we landed. Now, their war, of course, was different in, in many ways from ours because they used old-fashioned... And I'm sure that somewhere, 87 billion light years away, some guy is watching Earth, and he is planning to land on Trignon 7 someday, and he is hoping that when he gets to Trignon 7, there will be beings there, mysterious beings there, who have conquered love, who know all about how to get along with all other people, who know how to get rid of war, and have lived in peace forever and ever and ever, and have the secret of the universe, and the secret of all seeing humility and love, and who understand God's perfectly. If only we could get to Trigon 5. Trigon 5 appears to have a little somewhat viscous atmosphere. There could be beings such as we know on Trigon 5. And some guy is in an attic somewhere. 87 billion light years away writing a science fiction story about how these people on Trignon 5 understand each other by thought waves. If only we could get to Trignon 5! Trignon 5! Trignon 5! And there is an all-night radio program. 87 billion light years away, short Freddy is doing this this five-hour radio program, and he's got six guys, one of whom claims that he was teleported to Trignon 5 and taken inside of a spaceship and shown how to live in beauty, humility, and love forever. Then another guy is writing a movie, 87 billion light years away, called The Invaders from Trignon 5, with the giant stainless steel pincers that eat up people like rotten things. Beware of Trignon 5! 
Funny how all them scientists know the names of all them stars, you know. I wonder how they know them. I wonder what this one, Saturn, that took you. It could have been almost any name, you know. Saturn, it could be almost any name. You get up Jupiter. It could be almost anything. How do we know it's Jupiter? It's very funny. And Pluto. I remember one time on this kid, this lady says we have discovered a planet way out somewhere. It's way out on the outer circle there, and nobody ever sees it. Just once in a while, it shows up and looks very sad and then disappears into the darkness. Ever since that time, I've been a Pluto fan. That's the name of the planet there, Pluto. It's funny how they know that's Pluto, you know. Just shows up. <laughs> What'd you say I was a pain in, Max? your station for news. Direct from Churchill Downs, the 89th running of the famed Kentucky Derby, the long-awaited run for the Roses. That's tomorrow afternoon. You'll hear it at 5.15 right here on WOR Radio. Tomorrow afternoon, 5.15. Over WOR Radio, your station for news. Now stay tuned for Long John Nebel over WOR AM and WOR FM in New York at exactly midnight.